Berlusconi, Trump and Boris Johnson are extremely good retail politicians. So they're tapping into the grievances, they're channeling them, they're telling people they're going to fix them. But there's an entertainment quality that I think we can't underestimate. And part of that is kind of like a bread and circuses approach. One of the things that I feel like when you're aggrieved and all is not going in your direction, having some distractions, some entertainment, you know, people were really into soccer and other kind of pastimes to distract themselves, divert themselves. In a way, they're feeding into that as well. They're providing entertainment. You know, you're on their team, you're on their side. They're going to be the champion for you. They're going to go out there and fight for you. They're going to do things for you. But they're going to engage with you and they're listening and hearing you. They're not kind of talking at you. They're engaging with you. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Omicron is everywhere. My friends tend to be a careful bunch, and for most of the pandemic, I barely knew anybody who is infected with COVID. Over the last few weeks, close to 20 of my friends and acquaintances have gotten Omicron. So the question is, what does this mean for the next weeks, and what does this mean for the long-run future of the pandemic? Well, I do think that we will face significant disruption in the coming weeks just because of how many people are getting sick quite quickly. But it is thankfully also becoming quite clear that Omicron is milder than Delta. And in particular, that for the many people who are vaccinated, it is very unlikely to cause serious illness or death. So we got lucky. There's another set of questions about what this means for the long run future of the pandemic. And I've started to distinguish here between a biological sense and a social sense. Biologically, we don't yet know the implications of Omicron because we are missing knowledge about key questions, such as whether people who have been exposed to Omicron are going to be even better protected against future strains. Whether or not Omicron, in a biological sense, is the beginning of the end of a pandemic depends on whether there's going to be a future severe strain that circumvents vaccines and is much more deadly than Omicron. I think there's good reasons to be hopeful that that is not going to be the case, but it is far from a foregone conclusion. But it is in the social sense that I believe Omicron really is the beginning of the end. Because even at a stage of a spread of Omicron where we weren't yet quite sure about just how deadly, just how dangerous it would be, most governments quite clearly embraced a new approach rather than going for far-reaching shutdowns, rather than trying to contain the spread of the virus as far as possible, they have been engaged in what in the world of climate change you might call adaptation rather than mitigation. They have been engaged in an effort to make sure that the virus won't bring society to a collapse or to a standstill. And most people have tried as best they can to go on living. The instinct of human beings is to be sociable. They want to go and connect with each other. They want to go and lead their lives. And in past times, humans have taken risks with their lives, even when the world was much more dangerous than it is now, even in the middle of the Omicron wave. You can think that this is an inspiring part of human nature, or you can think that this shows how careless human beings are, how willing they are, to risk injury or death in order to pursue their lives. But either way, it is just human. And after a period of extraordinary emergency since the beginning of a pandemic, we are now reverting into the direction in which human nature has pulled us all along. That is why socially, if perhaps not biologically, I think the Omicron wave really has been the beginning of the end of this pandemic. My guest today is Fiona Hill. Fiona was the Senior Director for Europe and Russia at the National Security Council for two years during the Trump administration, and she ended up being one of the most important and one of the most courageous witnesses during the impeachment trial of Donald Trump. She's also the author of 
there's nothing for you here, opportunity in an age of decline. We talk today not just about her time in the administration, not just about the impeachment trial. We talked about the way in which Russia did and did not interfere in the 2016 election and how the debate over that has continued to misshape American politics since then. Not just about how the United States going forward can manage an increasingly hostile Russia and a rising China, but also about Fiona's childhood, growing up in a mining town in the north of England, the daughter of a poor family, the way in which she sought out opportunity, but also the way in which she's deeply conscious of the lack of opportunity for many people in Britain and the United States and countries around the world, and how that shapes our politics, how that helps to explain the rise of populists and what we can do about that. Fiona Hill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Yasha. Great to be with you. So I've really enjoyed learning about your life story and your childhood from your latest book. It tells the story of how a working class girl from the north of England ends up getting into positions of real influence and authority an ocean away in the United States. What is sort of the relevance of that beginning? What is the relevance of class in England to how you sort of experience and see the world? Well, obviously, it gives me a very different vantage point. All of us bring a particular lens, right, to um, not just our own lives and the way that we interpret certain events and the way that we move through them, but also a lens to larger affairs, how we understand the world around us. And, you know, if you get into a position like you and I are in, in terms of being analysts of politics and international affairs and foreign policy, you know, you bring that perspective to it as well. And I have always been very much cognizant that I've been looking for a very long time, all the way through from the bottom up. You know, I'm not a member of the elite. Um, I suppose I am now, but I wasn't when I started off. There's a kind of certain accident of birth that comes to it. But there's also very much a specificity to the place and the time in my childhood. But there's for everyone, of course. But in this case, it was shaped by an awful lot of impersonal forces. There was a lot of interactions that I had that really gave me a different outlook from the people that I've you know, later worked with or earlier studied alongside. I realised that I was kind of seeing and experiencing things in a very different way. I feel all the way through my childhood career that I've been an outsider, someone who was always kind of looking in and having a very different set of experiences. And part of that comes from also being a woman, which is also an important element of this. And again, just an accident of birth, right? <laughs> That's kind of particularly choose like most people don't know about who I am and you know where I was born and the basic facts of that and that's also very much uh, shaped my interactions with people as I've moved along. And so tell us a little bit about the place where you grew up what its culture was and how that continues to influence how you see the world. Well it's a very distinctive place even in the context of the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom for most of the people outside sort of seems like a fairly monolithic kind of place. People kind of think of English. I mean they'll go there then they're aware of the Scots, you know, the Welsh and the Irish and having this ethnic distinctiveness. But England as a political entity has undergone a lot of changes uh, historically and has a very strong regional component that doesn't just come with geography and kind of accents of history, but there's a lot of strong regional cultures. There are accents and dialects that have emerged. There was a surprising amount of isolation between among regions in the United Kingdom and in England, you know, for example. Difficulties of travel physically, despite the small size, which may seem preposterous, you know, when people think about this. But my grandparents had uh, not really left their region apart from to fight in wars. My paternal grandfather fought in World War I. And other members of my family had fought in both World War I and World War II, just by the kind of accident of, you know, the kind of the timing of their birth. Beyond that, they hadn't really travelled anywhere. I mean, what a way to see the rest of the world, which was kind of common, I think, you know, around Europe and in the United States as well, particularly for people in the Second World War, for example, kids who were plucked from, you know, remote farming communities in the American Midwest and then find themselves on battlefields, like even in North Africa or Italy, you know, for example, quite a bit of a shock to the system all around. But the place that, um, you know, I was born in County Durham in the north of England has this very peculiar history. It was a principality of bishops, usually, you know, kind of some second son or brother of the king, particularly after the Norman conquest in the UK. And it was kind of a world apart. The prince bishops of Durham 
were basically entrusted with guarding the frontier against Scotland. They were allowed to have their own private armies and lived in castles, highly fortified settlements. It's the outer rim of the Roman Empire before that. The last outpost before Hadrian's Wall at the very end of Roman influence throughout Europe in that part of the world. The other important point about County Durham beyond this kind of interesting history, which gave it a degree of autonomy, actually, political and cultural and regional autonomy, was that it was one of the centres of the Industrial Revolution. And it was really the centre of coal mining and then all the associated industries that came. The development of the first railways, there were freight railways for transporting coal. Steelworks, you know, shipbuilding on the coast and the export of coal from major ports, the first passenger railway. So it was very distinctive in then becoming a centre in which people from all over from the rest of uh, the United Kingdom, Great Britain, moved to Welsh, Scots, Irish, people coming up from the further parts of the south of England to work in the coal mines and the shipyards and the factories and the steelworks that grew up around this. And then in the aftermath of World War II, um, all of that industry had to be nationalised because of the impact of the war, the dislocation effects, private sector couldn't really recover, the government stepped in. And this is kind of really sort of the beginning of the end, although there was this massive rebuilding after World War II, all the industries in the region were nationalised. So this became very much the influence of the state. Everybody was working for the public sector, essentially. And the commercial aspects of the industries uh, really took a hit. And you start to see there's a massive decline in that kind of period after World War II, even in during rebuilding. And so in the kind of period in which you know I'm born in, in the 1960s, by that time, a lot of the industries are in trouble. They're no longer profitable. The world is moving on. There's a modernization. We're moving to the new knowledge economy, more automation, and the industry's in dire need of an overhaul. And when Margaret Thatcher comes into office as prime minister in the United Kingdom in 1979, she launches a mass privatisation campaign and the modernisation of British industry. And it's the privatisation of all this heavy industry in the 1980s. Hundreds of thousands of people suddenly laid off all at once. So my region goes, you know, the course of a century from being the cradle and the source of innovation for the Industrial Revolution to basically the source of mass unemployment in the, the UK, from the bastion of heavy industry to the bastion of impoverished working class. My father was a coal miner from many generations of coal mining, and I basically growing up in an atmosphere of unemployment and uh, limited prospects. I think there's two really interesting things about this, one of which is that you grew up in a community that I think has sort of some of the most extreme and positive forms of working class culture, right? Which is to say, coal mines, steelworks, etc. often had the strongest sense of collective solidarity, of a kind of positive earned identity derived from the jobs that people carried out. And from your description of it, it seems to me that at the time when you were growing up, it was in this weird limbo state where actually the sources of it weren't around anymore because the coal mines, most of them had closed down, the steelworks were closing down. But the cultural overhang of it was still really, really strong, right? So these generations of history of this, people still identified as coal miners, as being members of a working class. And that seems to have gone away now. I had Douglas Alexander, the Scottish politician, on the podcast a little while ago, and he was telling me that when he was campaigning for the Labour Party in the last election, he felt like they were offering people a trip to the mining museum, but they wanted to go to Euro Disney. So sort of a few decades on, not only the material base of that culture is gone, but the culture itself is gone. So I guess, what does it do to a country to see, first of all, the sort of source of pride in that working class culture erode, and then perhaps a little while later, the working class culture itself erode, if you agree with Douglas on this point? I do agree. And, you know, I know him well. And, you know, obviously the constituents that he represented in Scotland is very similar. People, you know, became in many respects trapped in the past. It's one of the reasons why I myself became extraordinarily interested in history, because I was trying to explain to myself as a kid what was going on and what had happened. Why was it that I was kind of living in this kind of decaying infrastructure I had those very strong senses use of community and culture to derive from the workplace. I mean, you really see how a particular form of work can manifest itself in culture. Our language had grown up around the coal mines. There were various dialects with even given names in the north of east of England. And in the Durham coal fields, there was a language that the miners spoke and their family spoke called Pitmatic from the pits. And a lot of it is various different kind of common references to tools that they would use, the practices that are built up, the words that weren't used anywhere else in the country. 
And again, there was all kinds of pastimes, people had their own songs, their own cultural clubs from soccer teams to reading and writing circles and uh, sketching circles. They produced famous artists and writers, for example. People who come from around the world. I mean, what struck me as a kid was reading about these famous Soviet writers like Yevgeny Zamyatin, somebody who I later studied, you know, who'd come to basically the northeast of England to understand it. George Orwell, his book about the road to Wigan Pier, he was writing about his time with miners not just in sort of Yorkshire and the Midlands, but also in the northeast of England. So this was kind of a very storied place, lots of political focus on it as well. The Durham miners used to actually set the agenda of the Labour movement in the United Kingdom and also the political movement within the Labour Party. And then they were basically a backwater. And trying to explain this for yourself and the impacts of this, that really kind of set me, I think, on something of my own personal odyssey. Uh, trying to sort of understand these larger phenomenon, what had happened and where we were heading. It also really reinforced regional divides in the United Kingdom because the North and County Durham in particular had been so associated with heavy industry and mass manufacturing. It was also associated with being dominated by the working class and the middle classes it would be in the United States. And that was kind of very different from other parts of England, particularly in the South. And so there becomes this kind of sense of that forgotten place, a place, as you said, in limbo, a sense of decay, and a, as you said, almost like a mining museum phenomenon about the north of England. And people do become trapped into that perspective. And so what's your story of how you end up moving out of that community, studying, among others, in Moscow and at Harvard, and in which ways did you have to grapple with the fact of coming from a working class background as you joined in the broader sense of political elite today? Well, first of all, the title of the book is There's Nothing For You Here, which is what my dad said to me, you know, when it became obvious that I was doing well enough at school that I would be able to apply to university. And of course, my parents really wanted me to do that. My dad had left school at 14. His education had been cut short repeatedly. He'd been pushed to go down the mines and not continue with schooling. My mom had left school a bit later at 16 and gone to train as a nurse. But neither of them had had the kind of educational opportunities that were actually expanding and opening up in the period um, after I was born in the 1960s. And my local education authority would pay all of the fees and provide a maintenance grant for students like myself from poor backgrounds, first in the family to go to university, and who had got you know, the requisite school qualifications and ability to study at university. So when that became obvious that I could do that, my parents were really pushing me to. But my dad had said to me, look, you know, if you get these qualifications, you won't be able to come back here again. There's nothing for you here, pet. You know, you're going to have to start thinking about, you know, what else you do and where else you go. And the reason I started studying Russian was very much the timing. It wasn't just this sort of timing of this economic collapse related to, you know, the move away from heavy industry and mass privatization and, you know, modernization that was going on in the UK at the time. But it was also the time of all the war scares, the peak of the Cold War, the so-called Euro missile crisis that went from 1977 to 1987, so spanning my whole teenage years and my first years at university. And the whole idea that the Soviet Union and the United States could get into a nuclear confrontation, the different placements of missiles and staging of new missiles in Europe, for example. And I decided to study Russian, almost as sort of a practical response to this, to try to figure out if we were literally going to be facing nuclear Armageddon, why? <laughs> I had an older cousin of my father, my uncle Charlie, who I talk about in the book, who said to my dad one day, you know, your Fiona's good at languages. I'd been studying French and German. I'd go on school exchanges. Said she should study Russian and try to figure out why they're bloody well trying to blow us up. Because he'd, during World War II, he'd been in the Atlantic convoys, supplying the Soviet Union from the UK and Canada and the United States during the height of World War II and wondered why we'd been once wartime allies and now seem to be implacable enemies. You know, what had gone wrong here? And so this is another set of questions, you know, my personal questions of how did we go from being the crucible of the Industrial Revolution to the crucible of unemployment? And then, you know, why was it that the relationship with the Soviet Union had deteriorated so much in the time frame from, you know, 1945 onwards? And so I decided to study Russian. And I think, well, maybe I'll become an interpreter. You know, maybe on the outside, because, you know, I'm from the working class. I don't have much sense of, you know, what I can do with this, but I could try, right, to do something. I could be an interpreter. I knew those were jobs. So I thought, well, maybe I could join the Foreign Service and I could maybe be a, a diplomat, you know, and maybe I could help, you know, in some way to kind of figure out negotiations. 
there was that naivety and that kind of thought that maybe I could do this. And I got a chance to go to St. Andrews University in Scotland where I could take Russian from scratch because Russian was not available in the schools in my hometown. But of course, there were a lot of obstacles. Uh, there was all discrimination against people like me. Only 5 to 6% of kids in the UK in any different socioeconomic circumstances, class circumstances, went to university. So, you know, the likelihood of a person from a working class background going to university was slim anyway. And following this career path seemed unlikely. I also didn't have all of the money necessary for all the studies. There was all kinds of other things I would have to do beyond just having the fees paid at St. Andrews and a maintenance grant for housing. You know, I didn't have money for all the other essentials, books and other studies, internships, summer programmes. I would have to take intensive Russian. And that's when I kind of started on this sort of odyssey that I describe in the book, the kind of book of the theme is opportunity. Sometimes you have opportunities, but you can't take them because you don't have the wherewithal to do so. And, you know, I had to then be very creative. And also I was very lucky in finding sources of additional funding. The Durham Miners Association gave me some uh, money. My local Rotary Club, the Business Association, you know, for example, did friends, relatives, neighbours. You know, I had all kinds of mentors and benefactors who stepped up to try to make it possible for me to uh, basically pursue education beyond, you know, the fact of going to university. I was very fortunate to get grants and fellowships. Lots of things that I was able to take advantage of disappeared after that. You know, there was time specific. And, you know, that was kind of later when I reflect back and I think about that journey that I took, that trajectory, that move, it's not that feasible for people. So the things that I did are not so easy to do. They weren't at the time, but now they are more impossible for people from similar kinds of backgrounds. That's interesting. I've thought about that in my own story. I come from, in many ways, a middle-class family. My mom is a musician, but one that's economically, there was better times and worse times, as is often the case of artists. And I went to study in England back when tuition fees were about a thousand pounds a year. And that was something that my family could afford. The tuition fees where they are now, I think the easiest course of action would have been to stay in Germany. And that's likely what I would have ended up doing. In retrospect, I realized that perhaps I may have been able to find some fellowship or something like that. But at the time, I just knew at that time, I guess, tuition fees would have been 30 something thousand dollars. And that just seemed, you know, completely impossible. So then you end up going for graduate study in the United States. And one of the themes of the book is the sort of two different lenses through which to look at the world. Class, which seems in many ways dominant in Britain, for perhaps it sometimes conceals the importance that race plays in Britain. But then race in the United States, which is the primary, or at least the most salient social stratification in the United States, but perhaps sometimes somewhat conceals the importance that class also plays in America. Exactly, yeah. And that's deliberative course, right, too, because there were efforts, including in Britain that I described in the book, that are very well discussed in other works, for example, to remove some of that class solidarity on a socioeconomic basis that would have otherwise emerged in the, you know, the broader labour movement in the UK and the United States by playing up racial and other differences. Yeah, and so how did your perception of these two different forms of social stratification and the way that they interrelate change and evolve as it came to know the United States? Yeah, well, in the UK, I was kind of unaware of it, really. You know, I describe in the book, growing up in a predominantly white environment, race just was not an issue in my home region because, you know, 98 plus percent of uh, the population were white British. White British is now a term that's been used in the last 10 years. But when I was growing up, it wasn't really something that was kind of thought about. But we did think about in ethnic terms. You know, my family were a mishmash of English, Scottish, Irish, Welsh and traveller, those lowland Scottish travellers. There's actually a whole category of travellers, Roma or Romanishal travellers, very distinct ethnic group, but also Irish travellers, Welsh travellers, lowland Scots travellers, for example. So, you know, there was a kind of an ethnic and religious differences between Catholic and Protestants, which were very real distinctions in the United Kingdom, but it was only in really big cities and in London where the racial dimension was you know, uppermost. And in the 1980s, that was really kind of starting to come to the fore, but not where I was living. We were kind of watching this, observing it from afar. So when I get to the United States in 1989 and they come to Boston, it's a real shock to the system. It's instantaneous, unavoidable, and I'm playing catch-up because I mean, obviously I knew a little bit about American history and I'd read about the civil rights movement, but I was not expecting you know, what I encountered in Harvard. And I had a crash course, as I describe in the book, in American race relations in my first weeks there. I had not realised that I was kind of coming into a Boston 
and a larger environment around Harvard that was badly scarred by the efforts that had been undergoing since the 1970s to desegregate the Boston public school system and busing kids from different neighbourhoods uh, to try to do so. And it had had the exact opposite effect from what was intended. The white public schools were supposed to be desegregated, ended up being all black, or predominantly black, as white Bostonians just decided to leave these neighbourhoods and go to schools or move into the suburbs. So it was kind of a total mess and been an incredibly fraught, at times violent, and altogether the exact opposite of what had been intended through the various court orders. And of course, this has been happening across the country, but it was particularly acute in Boston. I found that Boston was a particularly as well segregated on so many different levels, religious, ethnic, racial. You know, I was quite shocked. I hadn't lived anywhere like that before. Of course, I was very well aware of the distinctions of my Welsh and Irish and Scottish ancestors and friends and relatives. But here in Boston, there were whole neighbourhoods. That wasn't the case in a small town like Bishop Bond, where everybody was working the coal mines or in you know, factories and things together. And this was not the America I was thinking of. I was thinking of the great melting pot land of opportunity where of equality, fairness, it had been kind of like the beacon for, you know, my family. And so I'm finding that it's not quite, <laughs> it's not quite that. Harvard itself, there was a great effort on the part of the university to diversify the student body. But it was a work in progress and there was all kinds of tensions that I was witness to. So immediately I start to realise that there are all kinds of these different layers here and I need to educate myself. And gender comes into the picture in ways that I hadn't really been thinking about. Of course, I, mean, I was a girl, I knew I was a girl at home and there was all kinds of horrible sexism and you know I described some of this in the book but I didn't think about how it would play in the workplace for example because I've been so focused on class and you know the kind of the class determinations of really my opportunities when I was living in the UK and I'd never lived in the UK in anything other than a working class environment and I hadn't thought about you know women in a different kind of workplace in a professional workplace for example or in academia for obvious reasons. One of the things that you've been really interesting about is that actually this lack of opportunity for various groups in different contexts and the resentment over this is one of the drivers of populist politics. How is it that politicians that are often quite elite themselves, whether it's Boris Johnson in the United Kingdom or whether it's Donald Trump in the United States and there's many other examples in places around the world, like Silvio Berlusconi in Italy, for example, are able to effectively tap into this resentment in a way that actually is politically efficacious? How is it that this lack of opportunity translates into electoral victories by people who often are very much born as members of the elite? All of these three people that you mentioned there, it was interesting. I mean, you mentioned Johnson, Berlusconi and Trump, definitely part of the elite. But, you know, all three of them are entertainers in some respects, right? Showmen. Berlusconi owned a whole TV and media and communications company, Trump emerges not just as a celebrity businessman, but as a celebrity reality TV, a real life celebrity. His whole rise to the top is through reality television. And Boris Johnson is a journalist who also has a very quick wit, kind of a bit of a flair for stand-up comedy, improvisational comedy. He obviously has been well-trained as an orator in the kind of context of coming from Eton and the various clubs and the debating societies he was part of at Oxford. And all three of them have a chameleon quality to them that they can kind of adapt their personas to the people that they're interacting with. And they have a kind of a feel for politics. They are, in some respects, political geniuses, I guess, until they're not, right? But they have a knack for feeling the moment and feeding into the grievances. For Berlusconi and Trump, I think they kind of felt themselves disrespected in larger society. But Johnson is a part of the whole society, he's part of the elite. He kind of knows what makes it tick, but he's able to, you know, through this kind of gift for comedy and self-deprecation and a certain warmth about him. I mean, he's got a kind of a warmth and empathy on his external interactions with people. He's able to engage with people and get them engaged with him. He's engaging and entertaining. And I think that's part of an element of it as well. They're extremely good retail politicians. So they're tapping into the grievances, they're channeling them, they're telling people they're going to fix them. But there's an entertainment quality that I think we can't underestimate. And part of that is kind of like a bread and circuses approach. One of the things that I feel like when you're aggrieved and the world is not going in your direction, having some distractions, some entertainment, you know, people were really into soccer and other kind of pastimes to distract themselves, divert themselves. In a way, Berlusconi, Trump and you know, Boris Johnson are feeding into that as well. 
They're providing entertainment. You know, you're on their team, you're on their side. They're going to be the champion for you. They're going to go out there and fight for you. They're going to do things for you. But they're going to engage with you and they're listening and hearing you. They're not kind of talking at you. They're engaging with you. They're not providing, you know, anything in detail in terms of plans and proposals for solving problems, but they're making kind of people feel like they're connected and that they matter. I think there is something very interesting about the way in which Trump and Berlusconi and many populists in particular, well, it's interesting as I point out, but it's not true of Johnson, you know, have a genuine hatred for the quote-unquote true members of the elite that I think is similar to the resentment people lower down the social scale might feel. They understand it, yeah. Yeah, somebody, you know, like Berlusconi never felt accepted by sort of the intellectuals in Italy or the sort of old money in Italy or the aristocrats in Italy. And so he was kind of resentful of that. And that resentment was quite genuine. And it may have been similar to resentment that somebody in a mid-sized provincial town in Italy who is lower middle class might feel against the sort of notables of the town who might look down on that person or something like that. It's like the role of comedy, right? If you think about this, I mean, I haven't really talked about this, but in the context of the book, people in the north of England, a lot of gallows humour, they're very funny. So before I'd written the book, actually, when I first emerged in public life and I made comments about how I'd be discriminated against by my accent, people would say, well, that's ridiculous. There are plenty of people with northern accents. And they'd then start listing a whole host of entertainers, particularly comedians and actors and actresses and people who are in music. And I said, well, that's the point. When you are marginalised, if you're not in the elite of the arts and culture, you often go into the entertainment world and, you know, the gallows humour, the making fun of this, the self-deprecation, in a way, it's a defence mechanism, but it's also kind of an act of resistance. And, you know, you're making fun of other people. You can sort of say things that are really unacceptable in other contexts, but if you're doing them the course of comedy and you're kind of calling people out. And that's really kind of what Berlusconi and, you know, Trump are doing particularly. Trump is pretty funny in an outrageous sense, but he's no different from a stand-up comedian. And if you look in the UK context, an awful lot of the stand-up comedians, also in the United States come from marginalised cultures and they get to say things to people that they couldn't otherwise. Boris Johnson doesn't do that, I mean, because he's from the elite. He plays a sort of self-deprecating buffoon. He's not a buffoon at all. He's extraordinarily clever. And this is part of his shtick. And Trump's genius comes to being honed in reality television, being able to say things in a bombastic, funny... He always says he's joking when he's actually not... But he says things in such a way. And Berlusconi did an awful lot of that as well. And look, and I kind of found in my own family, they were raconteurs. They would always joke. They had the kind of black gallows humour. It was the way of dealing with everything when things were stacked against you. And there's an also a big element, just to put it kind of more crudely, of people like, you know, again, not Boris Johnson, because he's got a different way of dealing with this, but Berlusconi and Trump giving everyone the big middle finger, you know, the kind of the rude gesture. And that really resonates for people from marginalised. I mean, I got sick of being talked down to and told I was this and that and the other. And you find yourself wanting to say something back again in a cutting way and bring them down to size. And comedy can do that, that hard-edge entertainment and comedy. And politicians can do that for you, right? I think a lot of the appeal of these populists is not that you necessarily like them, not that you even necessarily agree with them, but that they really annoy the people whom I hate. Exactly. They're going after them. Yeah. And they're calling them out. So you do your graduate study at Harvard, a master's and a PhD, and many sort of bounce around in a relatively typical fashion between nice think tank jobs and stints in government. And then you're asked to join the government, uh, Mr. Trump. Tell us about that moment and how you thought about whether or not you should join the government and what your experience in government was like. Well, it was a bit of a shock, actually. I never anticipated it. I mean, I don't think in my wildest <laughs> dreams I would have expected to end up in this particular administration. I'm not a political person, not partisan. I've never been on a campaign. You know, so even working in any administration would be unusual, honestly, in a political appointment. I had been in the government as a national intelligence officer, very much a professional expert position under the George W. Bush administration and into the first year of the Obama administration. But really, that was incidental, if that makes sense. It wasn't I was hired by the administration. I was hired by the entity of the National Intelligence Council. And I was plucked out of Brookings, the institution, the think tank that I've been affiliated with for two decades. And I was on loan. In this instance, 
I ended up coming to the attention of a couple of people who had been in and around the campaign for Trump because of this previous work in the National Intelligence Council, also my work at Brookings and the book I'd written with uh, my colleague Clifford Gaddy on Putin, Mr. Putin operative in the Kremlin. And it was a direct response to the Russia's efforts to interfere in the 2016 election and trying to you know, figure out how to respond to this. And I was supposed to be asked to come in, you know, with the express idea that I would sit down with Trump, which of course was not a far-fetched it turned out to be, and sit down and explain Putin to him. Well, of course, that never happened. He wasn't interested at all in hearing from, you know, me, middle-aged woman, you know, might have written a book about Putin, irrespective of my background and, you know, uh, what I had to say. He wanted to sit down with Putin himself and, you know, but hire people like Rex Tillerson, the former CEO of ExxonMobil, whose Secretary of State was supposed to make the introduction for him, which would affect that meeting with Putin. But that was the general idea. And look, for me, what had happened in 2016, the national security crisis of a really sophisticated Russian old style, frankly, Cold War propaganda and influence operation that had just metastasized and kind of you know, gone out of all control because of the effects of social media, the particular acute vulnerability of the United States, that kind of operation, that specific time, the chaos of the presidential election. In any case, this was really unusual and very vitriolic election. 17 different candidates for the Republican Party. Nobody expected Donald Trump to emerge out of that. Hillary Clinton in a standoff with Bernie Sanders, who wasn't even you know, part of the Democratic Party, a self-styled socialist independent senator. And Trump you know, wasn't at all of the Republican Party. He'd just kind of joined out of expediency because he wanted to run for president. And he could have run as an independent. He could have even, perhaps, if it hadn't been Hillary Clinton in the mix and Bernie Sanders, you know, tried to go to be as a Democratic candidate because he had at one point been a registered Democrat. So this was kind of a wild ride, a perfect storm. And in the midst of it, you know, the Russians had decided to kind of leap in there and intervene. It created a domestic disaster in the United States. And as we're all well aware of, we're still living through the consequences of it. And when I got asked, I felt like I had to do something. So I felt really strongly I had to do something. I just wasn't expecting to be asked. Just to double down for one moment on this element of it, because I think that there's now a lot of confusion about it. And frankly, I'm somewhat confused about it. Well, I'm confused too, you know, a lot of the time too, and all the different dimensions of it, because there was so much happening all at once and unpacking it was very difficult. Right. But particularly around the sort of Russia piece, because I think it's obvious to me that Russia attempted to intervene in the election. It's not obvious to me how much of an impact that actually had. It's obvious to me that Trump and the campaign were very receptive to various forms of aid. It's not obvious to me how much of a difference that made. And then it's obvious to me that some of the narrative around what had happened went well over rails and that some of the stuff speculated about after 2016 in retrospect is really quite embarrassing for the media but it's not obvious to me how much that should matter so can you give us a sort of three-minute summary of how you know 50 years from now a history book may cover in a couple of pages speaking as a historian easy little task they cover what the stakes were in the russian interference what happens what didn't happen what mattered what didn't matter well, I'll just focus on two facets of this, which I think can help us. There are so many confusing details in them. <laughs> I find myself in the middle of, and it's hard to make sense of them all. But there are two issues here. First of all, it's a fact that Russia interfered. And as you said, it's also a fact that people in and around Trump's campaign were quite willing to take information from any sources that would help the campaign in the pursuit of winning and, you know, certainly defeating Hillary Clinton. And it's also, you know, the case that the Clinton campaign, you know, were doing some of their own dirty politics as well. But the Russians were gunning for Hillary Clinton. And we have a lot of information about this from all kinds of different sources. It's not a fact, though, that the Russians affected the actual outcome of the election. And although, you know, there are people who've written about this and, you know, people have suggested that that's the case, I think it's an extraordinarily high bar, you know, first of all, to achieve. And it's also extraordinarily difficult to basically say that 70,000 plus people in, you know, three counties and three states who that swear the Electoral College in favour of Donald Trump, because of course Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, were persuaded by Russian propaganda or by the fictional created personas that Russian operatives created on platforms like Twitter and Facebook or Twitter bots and things like this. So, 
Donald Trump was elected by real Americans who were pushed by their own personal political preferences, I think is the best way to put this. But it is also a fact that the perceptions of that intervention and the facts of that intervention, because the Russians did interfere, had a huge impact on our domestic politics and the way in which, as you describe, it played out in the media. So it becomes a domestic political mess, the idea of Russian intervention, and it shapes everybody's reactions. And Russia becomes, for the first time since the Cold War, an issue in our domestic politics. And the whole way that we act in our politics is shaped by various people's perceptions of what they think happened or didn't happen in the course of 2016. And we're still dealing with that. You know, we're still dealing with the fact that the president thinks that there was a Russia hoax, that the, you know, the Russians didn't intervene, um, and people trying to prove that. Well, they did intervene. It was an actual fact. And we're still trying to deal with lots of actions that people took in response to those perceptions. And in fact, we put off addressing the deep-seated grievances and problems within American politics as a result of a big argument about what Putin did or didn't do and what Trump and the campaign did or didn't do in 2016. And it's also Trump's perception that many Democrats were trying to unseat him after being elected because of their views on what the Russians did or didn't do in cahoots with his campaign that really kind of shaped his own view that there was an effort to get rid of him and that then he has a right to himself, you know, to try to retain power, you know, later on by all kinds of different means, because he's already been attacked by people trying to impeach him and try to get rid of him right from the very beginning. So we end up in an absolute bloody mess, <laughs> to put it bluntly, you know, in a very British term, you know, as a result of what happened in 2016. And even the Russians themselves can't quite believe the impact that it had. And I would, you know, kind of say that in my interactions with the Russians in my NSC job, they couldn't just get their heads around it. They thought, you guys went mad. You know, we did what we always do in the Cold War, and they said, you know, this is kind of what you would do to us. And actually, we wouldn't have done. I mean, we weren't hacking and releasing all the people's emails all over the place. We didn't actually interfere in the way that they said that we did in their elections, I mean, the way that they did in ours. We haven't tried to tip the scales. You know, we've gone out of that business, although they've seen us, in their view, do it in all kinds of other places. And so they just couldn't understand how they'd become so toxic and, you know, how our politics had just gone so derailed. And they kept expecting us just to get over it and get on with the usual stuff of U.S.-Russian relations. And of course, we couldn't. That's absolutely fascinating. So your counterparts were sort of somewhat dumbfounded by it and were they gloating about it? Well, they were gloating initially and then they kind of got a bit perturbed by it. And they thought, well, what's the matter with you? Because they thought it was all just a pretense. And I kept having to try to say to them, look, you have no idea. Everybody in the United States hates you, even the people who are publicly saying something different now, because you made such a mess in our politics. And they would say to me, are you telling us that you're a banana republic, that we can make such a mess in your politics? But in fact, they did, right? Because, you know, an awful lot of people, it was they couldn't accept that Trump had been elected. So it was very convincing the Russians did it. <laughs> I've even actually got this postcard that somebody sent me recently saying Putin did it. You know, this kind of whole idea that Russia did it. But it's kind of a, a very convenient way of explaining to you the inexplicable because you haven't been paying attention to what's happening in domestic politics, right? And then, you know, there's others who just can't accept that Russia did anything because of just the kind of whole political nature in which this played out. And we can't have any kind of collective action in terms of a sort of response to dealing with Russia. And the Russians also wanted Trump to indeed be able to engage on a normal political footing, to have summit meetings and have arms control. And they couldn't understand why we were always going on and on about 2016 and how meetings would get derailed right away at the very beginning. And of course, they tried to play into that at first. After a while, they just got frustrated. And you could see by the end of the Trump administration, the Russians were almost, in some respects, eager to have Biden on board in terms of being more predictable. So at least they could get on with having some deals on arms control or having summit meetings. Now, of course, we've got it derailed again over Ukraine. And I would also argue that that's part of a reaction to what happened as well, because Trump tries to privatise Ukraine foreign policy as part of the whole aftermath of 2016 to have Ukraine blamed for intervention in some way to have Ukrainian leadership open up all kinds of investigations. This is where it all gets so confusing into Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden, as he's trying to hobble the competition in the 2020 election. And when the United States gets back to its usual foreign policy, national security businesses, we are reaffirming the sovereignty and independence of Ukraine, the Russians freak out. I think we're about to bring Ukraine into NATO. Next thing, we have a massive 
confrontation over Ukraine. And it's all kind of rooted in this mayhem and this maelstrom of the perfect storm of politics and Russian intervention that we get in 2016. And I think, you know, historians have been writing about this forever. <laughs> <laughs> Try to unpack it. The explanation is absolutely fascinating because it both doesn't overstate the extent of Russian interference in the way that I think some of the shoddy journalism and, and takes have done, and yet shows how it is actually in a deep way at the root of a lot of different kinds of rot that we now see in our political system. That's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and it wasn't what the Russians intended, you know. I mean, I think it was just like this ricochet effect. And we all did go mad, you know, it was collective insanity as a result of it, because it was like 9-11 when we did as well, because nobody would have expected it uh, them to have such an impact. And, you know, really some of the things that they did had a huge impact, the hack and release of the emails for Hillary Clinton and the DNC. But ultimately, you know, as the Russian ambassador <laughs> said to me once, you know, they didn't invent some of the other consequences of this. They didn't force Jim Comey to decide to go back into the emails rather crudely, you know, at one point, the senior Russian said, we didn't invent Anthony Weiner. You know, we didn't put those emails on his server. You know, of course, poor Pema Abedin's now ex-husband, who gets, you know, snarled up from his own impropriety and inexcusable behaviour, but they find some of the emails from Hillary Clinton on the personal laptop as they're doing another investigation. This opens everything back up again. So, you know, the Russians didn't do everything. This is one of my favourite under-remembered facts, but if it weren't for Anthony Weiner you would not get the Comey letter and arguably you would not end up with Trump winning. And as the Russians said, we didn't have anything to do with that. Right, right, right. I mean, I hope I've explained this, but I mean, it's complex. And I think that this is a problem about why people find it so confusing and they kind of just zone out of it or think that, well, what could possibly have happened to you? Because there are so many different dimensions. But these two facets of the fact of Russian intervention and then the impact that has in politics. But then the other thing that they didn't actually affect the outcome of the election are important to keep in mind in terms of who got elected. Right, certainly the Facebook groups and all of those kinds of things did not in any very meaningful way. So you go into the administration, you're supposed to go and explain Mr. Putin to Mr. Trump. That doesn't happen. Tell us about your time in the administration and how you are able to stick to your principles and you know wind up as really one of a few people who come out of the administration being able to hold the heads up high. I mean, the pressure to shut your mouth, to go along, must have been enormous. So first of all, how are you thinking at each moment about what's the benefit of staying in versus what's a potential risk substantively in terms of becoming complicit with very bad things, but also personally? And how were you able to take a courageous decision to testify against Donald Trump and to stand up for your professional values in an impeachment trial under very difficult circumstances? Well, look, first of all, I went in purely focused on the national security aspects of this and trying to deal with what I also did see was this multifaceted problem, but determined to focus on that and bearing up immersed in my mind at all times about all the risks that you outlined, because plenty of people gave me their thoughts on it. Some said that they wouldn't speak to me again, you know, by making that decision because, you know, they were very convinced that actually Trump had been elected by the Russians' intervention. I'm guessing they're speaking to you again, or...? Yeah, a couple of them have not. And, uh, you know, I guess they're stuck to their points as well. And the nature of the man himself, which I was aware of. I mean, I was worried about that as well. But I was more worried about the implications of what the Russians had done and could we mitigate this and could we push back and make sure it didn't happen again. And also I had all of Europe in my portfolio. And there was so many tensions. I mean, you know, I'd worked in the past on Turkey you know, obviously there's Ukraine, the Caucasus, and all of Europe, and NATO and the European Union, and, you know, even the UK in my portfolio. And I kind of felt this incumbent upon me to try to step up there and do whatever I could. There was an off going on. We had Brexit and crises on all fronts, Syria, Turkey, and the Kurdish standoff of the United States. I mean, I came in just as the United States had made the decision to back the Kurds in the fight against ISIS, for example, which was rupturing the relationship with Turkey. I spent as much time on Turkey and sometimes more than on Russia, for example, or some of the other European issues. Questions about the future of NATO. So many different things on the agenda here. And I also gave myself a limited time frame. When I'd gone into the government before as a national intelligence officer in the National Intelligence Council, I had had a four-year limit 
It was two years with the opportunity to, or the possibility of extending for another two years. But that was an absolute limit. And Brookings actually was not sure that they would allow me to go that next leave because, you know, Brookings usually went two-year terms. And I ended up doing three and a half years, but coming back earlier than the end of the four. And in this case, I decided to take a proper leave from Brookings, unpaid leave, obviously, and try to limit myself to two years and then to leave. So that I wouldn't, I thought at the time, then get so embroiled in the domestic politics and wouldn't get smelled up in the campaign. And well, of course, pretty early on, I realised that was naive, that this was a permanent campaign and I was going to have to tread very carefully. And that I should be ready to leave if I became part of the problem, which was another warning that I had from Martin Indyk, one of my close associates, one of my bosses from Brookings. While you still couldn't be part of a solution, stay, but if you become part of the problem, you've got to leave. And by 2019, it was very clear there were problems on every front. I wanted to leave the position in a way that I could hand it on to others. I got out just that week before the fateful phone call. But look, you know, I took an oath to the Constitution. I was very focused on the issue of national security, trying to do the job. And when I then got called up to testify, there was no question that I would do so. Because all the way through, I had been speaking out behind the scenes to my immediate chain of command, which I had the good fortune of having people like General H.R. McMaster and Ambassador John Bolton, who were patriots and who were pretty principled people. They're obviously very different people, but others that I work with who were detailed from across the government, people who had been in previous administrations and who were all doing their jobs. Now, you know, some people had very strong agendas. You know, I think people are very familiar with Ambassador Bolton and, you know, many of his views, but the man is a patriot and, you know, was dedicated to upholding the constitution, the principles. And so, you know, I was pretty sure that I could speak and speak freely, but of course I was under political assault the entire time I was there. And that was surreal, but I have to say that I was prepared for it, partly because of my studies of the Soviet Union and Russia. And, you know, it was like being in the middle of the Stalin purges at different points. But I wasn't being sent to the gulag, you know, I wasn't being drawn up in front of a firing squad. And I also you know, was able to dig deep into my own childhood and the resilience that I'd built up there in very harsh and difficult circumstances, remembering where I'd come from. So at all points, that was uppermost in my mind. I wasn't in there for the perks and the privileges, and I wasn't in there for any political purpose other than to try to push back against what happened. And I was also focused on trying to figure out, could we manage this confrontation with Russia and put it in a different footing? Going back to the early reason I first started studying Russian, was there something that we could do to get ourselves off this track? Gosh, we're still in one heck of a situation with Russia over Ukraine. And this is a very dangerous relationship. And how do we manage this? And I was trying to keep myself focused on that. I did not, I have to say, expect the domestic politics to go off in the directions that they did. I mean, I had a, let's just say, a real shock to the system by how dirty American politics is. I think I still was, you know, somewhat naive, having never been in a political campaign, never been so close to the political bus furnace as others who would warn me have been, you know, just to how this would unfold. There is so much corruption and, you know, so much just private gain in our politics at this particular juncture that we are really repeating many of the things that we've seen in many different settings. And look, I mean, it's going to take people standing up for the principles of democracy to push back against this. And now that I've found myself with this platform that I never anticipated, you know, when I was called up to be a fact witness at the impeachment trial, I'm going to continue to stand up and speak out because I feel the future of the country is at stake. It's so obviously at stake that I have to say something, just as I had to, I felt going in 2016 to do something in response to, you know, the Russian intervention in the presidential campaign. So you spoke to the fact that it's been your mission from the beginning to think, how can we manage this relationship with Russia? How can we make sure that what was then a Cold War doesn't turn hard? Today, it continues to have a very adversarial relationship with Russia. And of course, we have what some people are calling a new Cold War with China. And so the prospect of a rivalry that is likely to last for the foreseeable future and that could turn very dangerous. So should we resign ourselves to the fact that the basic outlines of international relations for the next decades are going to consist of significant great power rivalry? And you know what do you think American foreign policy can do beyond the next few years of the Biden administration, beyond perhaps this decade, to manage that in a way which allows us to stand up for democracy and human rights at home and where appropriate abroad, but doesn't exacerbate the danger of things going very, very badly wrong? 
we're going to have to be very much focused on crisis management, as we were during the Cold War, sadly, just by, you know, as you said, this kind of emergence of the new forms of great power competition and rivalry. I mean, it's not where we thought we would be, but it's where we are, at least for now. Now, I do think that there are some things that we can do. First of all, I mean, we've always succeeded in the past, not just by the force of our arms, but the force and the power of our example. And our example hasn't been great <laughs> of late. And I mean, that's not just the United States, but the West, Europe more broadly. You're sitting in Germany now where a very interesting experiment in coalition government is underway and they have been in the past. And you have the SPD that ran on a campaign of mutual respect, which is extraordinarily interesting. So I think, you know, that this in itself could be kind of a path forward. Let's see. I mean, we don't know. It's very early days. I mean, incredibly early days. They've only just started. So it's far too early to be able to say how they will succeed at this. But certainly in the United States, our domestic and foreign policy become entwined together. You know, our poor handling of the COVID and a pandemic, not that everybody else has been doing particularly well either, the, the nature of our domestic politics, the insurrection of January 6th of 2021, the partisan nature and polarisation of our politics, you know, the need for evident political reconciliation in some form. If we can revitalise our democracy, this Democracy Summit has been looking at this as well, well, I think that's going to be part of it, to show by our example that we can also reform ourselves and give people stakes back in the system again. But the other issue is trying to find a new framing. We are actually all in a state of common existential threat. We just don't seem to have got it through to everybody. The pandemic ought to have concentrated the minds. It hasn't yet. But, you know, these successive waves and variants may do that. Emergence and fears of new infectious diseases, the next pandemics. We've got to do better than this as an international global community to respond to it. And climate change. We are starting to now see that it's highly unlikely that we are going to reach any of the targets that we set up 26, 30 years ago. COP26, I mean, we've been having these climate discussions now for the first part of three decades. We're not doing well. We are not going to stem the temperature increases, so we're going to have to mitigate. And we're going to have to adapt, and we're going to have to build a resilience. It's going to be global because we're all in this together. And everywhere is going to have refugees and climate migrants and climate disasters. We see this. And so I'm hoping that we can frame this for the future and start to at least take some small steps to work together. We're trying to do that with China and maybe we can reframe this. I mean, who cares, you know, what kind of country you are, your great power competition, if you're all laid waste by some climate disaster, right? Mother Earth is not kind of saying, oh gosh, you know, you're in the authoritarian camp, the democratic camp, as ice caps melt and global oceanic currents shift, etc. It's irrespective, right? <laughs> you know, which part of the world you're coloured in terms of this is like the blue for democracy and the green for this and, you know, everything else. Yeah, so... We're all in this together and hopefully over you know, some considerable period of time, maybe it'll take some more disasters to push this along. But I am kind of more hopeful that we can chip away at this. And, you know, we're about to have another major economic dislocation of the kind that I experienced as a kid in the 70s and 80s. We're moving towards artificial intelligence, a different form of economy. We're moving towards new green technologies. China is in the forefront of this. We're all going to have to catch up. So a whole generation of people are going to be experiencing a very different world from the one we're in now. But it's a combination of crisis management and then trying to sort of reframe the global debate. Yeah, that seems exactly right. Just as a final question, I want to bring it back to the beginning of a conversation, which is your thoughts on opportunity and the way in which a lack of opportunity has led to many of our problems in politics today. How can we fix that? How can we make sure that the forgotten people, the forgotten regions forgotten groups feel that they have enough opportunity, enough respect, enough of a stake in the society that, you know, hopefully we can turn a page. Well, this is also multidimensional. It's not just in the realm of public policy and the role of government and breaking down barriers or, you know, coming up with legislation for new infrastructure, for example, physical and in terms of infrastructure of opportunity through education and public health, you know, for example. It's also a private sector. Even at the individual level, I mean, I describe in the book things that you and I and others can take, for example, things we can do. I think, you know, universities can play an awfully important role in think tanks, you know, in kinds of new ideas, new approaches to education. Philanthropy has an important role to play. You know, we've seen this from some of the major donors like McKinsey Scott, the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos, you know, from um, Amazon, giving literally billions of dollars away to university and uh, higher education institutions that particularly cater 
to people from underprivileged backgrounds, historically black universities and colleges in the United States, for example, those first generation going to college, but also people who want to reskill and retrain, you know, for example. We have to work very hard at, at removing the barriers, the discrimination on basis of race, ethnicity, religion, gender disability, you know, for example, all the kinds of ways in which people allow their biases to shape their hiring, you know, making sure that human resources departments in um, every, you know, private sector and public sector environment are making, you know, sure to give people an equal chance and a shot at a job. And a lot of it is an investment in early childhood education, investment in children, for example. We have all these debates about child tax credits or direct payments. I mean, I am the beneficiary of direct child benefits, when I was growing up in the UK, I helped keep my family out of abject poverty. My family were well beneath the poverty line, but these payments made a difference. You know, thinking about how we can help people get education, training, all different phases in their career paths without going into massive debt, work sponsorship, corporations working with universities for retraining and reskilling, you know, for example, more grants and uh, subsidisation for people who are first generation or from marginalised communities or communities historically and traditionally being discriminated against. There's so many different ways in which you can approach that. But I think the question is really how do we put it together in a comprehensive way? You know, I suggest various things in the book that other people have come up with. Domestic development agencies, for example, that also take best practices of things we've done in international settings. There's all kinds of things. Having discussions about this, like that we're having on your podcast and the way that you frame all of your debates are kind of engaging with people so we help better inform people about the complexities of these issues and have a rational civil debate about things so that people can make up their own minds that they're not being subject to disinformation you know for example i think there's all all important elements everything is a kind of a building block to this and i said in the book i try to pull a lot of different things together and then come up with some practical suggestions of what individuals can do mentoring youth you know volunteering everything from your local library bit difficult during covid but you know for community programs for example and if you've got the means you know kind of giving donations to food banks and groups that help underprivileged kids for example jonah hill thank you so much for coming on the podcast Thank you so much, Yasha. It's just really been a privilege and really enjoyed having the discussion with you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Chess Pieces.